And let's be clear, we exist only as a Great Commission people. We exist in order that sinners will hear the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and believe and be saved from all the nations. The marching orders of the Church of Jesus Christ were to go into all the world and preach the gospel because the gospel has the power unto salvation. This is what it means to follow Christ. A call to live, a call to die, a call to spend your life for Jesus here and around the world until he returns. This is Amazon to the Himalayas podcast. I'm your host, Paul Aiken, and we're going to continue our conversation on the missionary task. We want to continue to explore really the first key component, the, the entry phase of the missionary task. How is it that missionaries enter into a context and establish presence? Obviously, you know, visa access is one critical piece to that, but another key aspect that people may or may not think about is language and culture. And that's going to be the topic of our conversation today. Our guest is a friend of mine named Matt, and Matt is a missionary veteran who has served in a variety of different contexts, but most recently serving in the Middle East. I've known Matt for many years, and I'm excited to have the conversation with him today. Matt, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Paul. I'm excited to be here and just talk about this. This is one of my one of my passions and something that I think is really important. So I appreciate the opportunity. Yeah. Why don't you just start by maybe telling us a little bit about who you are and what you do? All right. My name's Matt, and I'm married. Have a couple of kids, and uh, my wife and I have uh, served overseas in a number of contexts. We've actually lived probably outside the U.S about 20 years now. We've had some stints back in the U.S. with different roles uh, involved in mobilizing people, but currently we're part of a team uh, that's a multi-agency team that's focused on an unreached people group, actually multiple groups, and in a very difficult part of uh, the Arab world. Just really enjoying that. We do a lot of different things to try and access them, to give us opportunities to be involved, and so including relief and development, just leadership training, all sorts of things. And so really enjoying being able to invest in new leaders that God is saving uh, from these people groups. Awesome. Anytime you talk to somebody who's got unique linguistic skills or ability, you always kind of want to ask them, okay, you love languages. Well, how many languages do you actually speak? So I'm going to ask you that question, Matt. How many, how many languages do you feel like you can comfortably speak? Well, I speak four or five dialects of Arabic, Spanish, French, English. I can understand Brazilian Portuguese. And if I'm in Italy for a couple of weeks, I can usually make myself understood and get along. I wouldn't say I speak Italian, but I can find to just get around. Okay. Yeah, that's, that's, that's pretty impressive. I wish I could say the same. I cannot, unfortunately. But I want to ask this question. Why is it important to learn the language of the people that you're trying to reach. You know, I, I teach a class here at the seminary. We, we talk about the Apostle Paul and I tell them one of the benefits the Apostle Paul had as a kind of a near culture uh, missionary is that he could go almost anywhere in the Roman world. And he could speak the Greek language day one. And so that was a huge advantage for him. But now we hear stories, we hear accounts of, of missionaries going to other contexts and sometimes spending multiple years to learn a language. So why is it important to learn the language of the people that you're trying to reach? 
I think one of the biggest reasons that I look at is I think when you take the time to learn the language and understand the culture of the people that you're going to reach, you actually honor the Imago Day in those people. You convey to them the fact that they have dignity and worth and that who they are actually reflects something unique about the image of God. When we look at what God did at the Tower of Babel and we think through that, the interesting thing is, is how God redeems what was sinful in man. And you look throughout and you look at, say, Revelation, and you think about the fact that there are going to be people from every tribe and language and nation. And so learning those languages, actually, you learn things about God that you would not if you didn't take the time to learn those. And I think also there's no way that you can develop deep heart level relationships with the majority of the people you're serving among without the language. Language conveys culture. It's transmitted through that. It helps you to understand the worldview. And without that, you couldn't do it. And I think if we look at Jesus, I mean, he clearly came, was incarnate in a particular setting. He didn't speak some heavenly language. He didn't try to make everybody learn his language. He learned the language where he was. Yeah, I think I think it's a good point. I remember, you know, we you've obviously served in a variety of different contexts. We, when we served on the field, just lived in two different contexts, but one we could we could get by with English decently well. Then we moved kind of midstream to another context. And I remember people saying, you know, how's it going? And I said, Well, I came here to share a message. And I'm not able to share the message. <laughs> so it's quite frustrating. And so there's that reality that, you know, the, the way that that the word, the, the good news gets communicated is through language. And so there's a reality that learning the language is, is critical. Now, you mentioned this some in your response, but I want to dive in a little bit deeper. What would you say is the relationship between language and culture? Yeah, I mean, it's it's really interesting when you look at culture, every culture has ways that it expresses its ideas, expresses what it believes to be true, where it's going to put an emphasis. And those are all conveyed or the majority of them are conveyed through language. When you when you think about those two things, it's the vehicle by which you're going to transmit a culture and it carries the stories. It'll carry the myths. It carries a worldview. It lets you see how people actually interpret reality. And so without understanding that, you can't really understand how people are even beginning to conceive of who God is or what they think God requires of them and how they want to respond to God. And so I think language and culture, you can't really separate the two. There are artifacts of culture that you can learn without language, but those oftentimes are the very basic things that are sort of caricatures that can be made into caricatures. They aren't necessarily, but they're they're not the heart level things that are actually shaping a person's worldview and the way that they approach life. The things that you get to that, the way people express their thoughts is through language. So you have to be able to get the language to really understand culture at that level. You know, there's a lot of conversation today about we live in a in a flat world, you know, technology has kind of flattened the world. And so I'm going to ask kind of a devil's advocate kind of question. It's like, hey, there's, you know, English is spoken in lots of places. Like, is it is it really that critical that we learn the local language to be effective in, in missionary work? How, how would you respond to that question? 
Well, it'd be really interesting if you went, say, probably the largest country that speaks English would be India. So you could say, oh, we could just go to India. We could just speak English. But when you look at the percentage of people that can communicate on a deep heart level in English, you are limiting yourself to a very small percentage of the population. And you're also making an assumption that people's language level is going to be sufficient to understand the concepts and that there's no need for you to really see how they're transmitting those concepts to other people. I think one of the biggest issues for me about why you need to learn the language and not just stay in English is we want to be sure that we are faithfully transmitting the gospel, the truths of scripture, that we're helping people to build healthy churches and to see those churches multiply in a way that we can actually assure that what we've done has been clearly understood and what they have passed on is the same thing. And so it's really easy for syncretism to creep in. People just do it. I mean, you see it in the West as much as you do other places. But the only way to, to know is that happening is to actually be able to understand what people are communicating. So I don't want to be in a position where when I teach somebody something and then I'm watching them teach somebody else or I'm interacting with the person they've discipled that doesn't speak English, I have no idea what that person actually believes about what does it take to be saved? What does it take to be a leader? What does it take to make sure that other people understand the gospel? Yeah, I think you, I think you make a pretty compelling case for the value of learning the language. Maybe kind of a follow-up question to that would be, well, then what is, what is an appropriate level? What's an appropriate marker? Uh, how, do you, how do you know when you've gotten to, to the right spot in terms of learning language? You know, one of the questions that, I, uh, that I've learned over the years to ask people is at the very beginning is to kind of ask people, okay, what is it that you feel like God has called you to do when you come here? What is it that you want to see happen? And then I say, okay, so if you were in your context, let's say you're back in America, but in a pioneer context, if you want to do these same things, what kind of language do you need to be able to do that? Like. What do you want to be able to express and then help them to recognize that that's going to be the same level that they want to get here. So take you, for example, Paul, if you felt called to go overseas and be in a seminary, the language that you have to use in your teaching, that level of language in English, you have much better English, a grasp on the ability to communicate nuance and ideas and depths and philosophy that somebody who is working, say, in data entry doesn't have to have. It has nothing to do with intelligence. It's just what is the language that has to be used. Same thing applies. So that's the first thing I do is I talk to people about that. Now, there are a number of different scales that can be used that measure proficiency. And I think those are important to use. There's ACTFEL, there's the Defense Language Institute, there is the European Common Framework, and all of those measure different things. But I think to the very least, what I've been exposed to the most and what we've used is ACTFEL, which is the American Council for Teachers of Foreign Languages, their scale. And I would say you need to get to at least an advanced mid, but I would say anyone who's going to be doing a lot of leadership development or teaching 
really should try to get to a superior level. And the reason is, is when you get to that level, you are able to take ideas, represent a group well, defend those ideas and engage in conceptual conversations. And you think about when you're trying to help people understand theology, there are a lot of concepts in that, that they're going to have to unpack. We were just doing a training this summer. And one of the things that we had a discussion on was we were talking about like, what about people who don't hear the gospel? What happens with them? And so talking through what it meant that people actually you know, people don't get a pass and that's part of why we go. But then we got into the whole issue of the sovereignty of God, election, issues of the free will of man. Well, you can't discuss those things with basic language. You have to be able to nuance discussions. And it's not just talking. You have to be able to listen and understand the questions coming back at you. So I think you can do basic evangelism with a lower level of language. But but even then, what happens when somebody asks you, well, like, I don't understand when you say that Jesus is God's son, like, like, how does that work? How did God have a son and with Mary? And what does that mean? And, and you say that there's a Trinity, you have three gods. Well, okay, no, I don't have three gods, I have one God, you know, but you think about the complexity of that. So you don't want to just go for a minimum bar, you want to think about what has God called me to do? What language do I need in order to fulfill that calling? Yeah, that's really good. You know, I think because the the stakes are so high, and when we talk about the good news of the gospel, communicating this in some cases to people who have never heard it before, seeing people come to faith, seeing disciples formed. When you think about all that goes into that, the stakes are are really high. So I think you're exactly right. Holding a, a high standard is really important. Kind of a follow-up question there is how do you go about keeping missionaries accountable? to learning the language, you know, making sure, following up, checking in, making sure that they're making progress. What does that process of accountability look like as they're learning it? You know, I think the first thing is you have to address this as people are getting ready to come out. People have to come out with a commitment that, okay, I am going to do this and it's going, it's going to cost me something. It's going to take time. It's going to take effort. And it's going to take a lot of humility. And actually, there's a good bit of humiliation involved in the process as well. But I think the first thing is you've got to do that. And then I've learned a lot over the years that accountability actually works best when you tap into what is it that motivates people. People go because God has called them to do something. And when you go back to that, when you go back to people's call, their relationship with the Lord, and you help them to tap into that, that's way more effective than trying to be like, well, here's my rule, or here's this standard, and you have to meet this, and you've got to do this many hours. It's about helping them to really think about what, why is it that I want to even do this? And so I think motivation is a big part of helping people with accountability. And oftentimes with people, it's a matter of of saying to them, okay, what are the tools that you need? And then you just help them to set up a program that they can work. And sometimes it means you just need to go out with them and walk alongside them. You need to demonstrate for them what can happen. One of the things that our team leader did this past summer when we were doing this training a couple of months ago, we have some new people on our team. They have a very minimal language level at this point, but he brought them to the training so that they could watch 
they interacted with the nationals that we were training, but, you know, it was at a fairly simple level, but they got to watch this and they came back so much more motivated about the language that holding them accountable is not nearly as hard. And so I think when we think about accountability, you need to help people to set up a good plan. You need to help them learn how to evaluate. Is this being effective? Everybody learns in slightly different ways. So you help them to see what is being effective. And then sometimes, depending on who the person is, you have to help them get over certain things that are more difficult for them. People who are shyer, more of an introvert, you've got to figure out how to help structure community time for them, where it's not just like, hey, I'm going to drop you down in the middle of a market with a thousand people, go talk to everybody. You know, you want to help them to develop some relationships. So sometimes that's about saying, okay, I want you to meet with these people on a regular basis. We have a lady that works in the office where the NGO that I'm associated with is. And one of the things we've done for one of our language learners is we just schedule twice a week. She has two hours just to converse with this lady. It's a very safe space. This lady is patient with her and it's making progress. In today's uncertain world, there's an urgent need for competent biblical counselors who can offer hope and help through the whole counsel of God's word. Are you called to be a counselor? A degree in biblical counseling from Southern Seminary is designed to equip students with a biblical foundation and professional skills needed to help others navigate the struggles and challenges of everyday life. This degree prepares graduates to minister to individuals, couples, and families in church, nonprofit, or missional settings. To learn more about Master of Divinity, Master of Arts, and doctoral degrees available through the Billy Graham School at Southern Seminary, go to sbts.edu bgs or go to the episode notes for this podcast and click the link to the Billy Graham School at Southern Seminary. There you'll learn how podcast listeners can save $40 when applying for classes. That web address again is sbts.edu bgs. You know, I'm going to ask a, a question that is, I think, can can cause some anxiety for some and cause some potential conflict. But in your opinion, do you think it's important if a, if a husband and wife go together? So we're talking about a family going and serving overseas. Is it important for both husband and wife to learn the language? When I think about this question, again, I go back to what is it that God has called us to do? And when I think about the context that most people are going to be serving in, over 50% of the population is female in the world. Many contexts where people are going to be serving, particularly if you want to serve among the unreached, men and women do not have the freedom to just mix. They're oftentimes going to be separated. So if women don't learn the language, you oftentimes are basically saying, we don't this will sound a little bit harsh, but I'm going to say it. We don't really care if 50% of the population doesn't have an opportunity to hear and therefore goes to hell. When you have men who are not interested in the gospel and aren't going to share it with their families, you basically are saying, okay, I'm condemning the women in that family to never having an opportunity to respond to God. So I would say it's incredibly important, and it's not just important for initial evangelization. It's also important for ongoing discipleship, which is why women need to get to a deep level. You look at what it talks about, about older women teaching younger women, training them up in godliness, helping them to know how to raise their children. Like when people are not in a Christian context, they've never had a godly family. 
their first generation, what is it that that mom is going to do with her kids to help them understand the gospel? How does she walk through that? And if you don't have a woman that is helping her to know how to do that, what does it look like to have a godly marriage? That takes two sides. We need women that can disciple women as men are discipling men to see those marriages flourish and reflect the reality of Christ's love for the church. So I would say, yes, we need women. We need their gifts. We need their their skills. Yeah, that's really helpful. I appreciate you sharing it that way. You know, there's a variety of different ways that you can learn language. You know, some people do well sitting in a class, you know, talking about grammar and these kinds of things. Other people want to get out in the street and just start talking to people. Some people want to have a tutor or a translator. Can you talk about, you know, in your opinion, what is the the best approach? What's the best way for somebody to really try to learn and pick up a new language? When you think about language and language learning, you've got to realize that you're talking about really four different things. So you have two that are focused on production. So that's speaking and writing. And you have two that are focused on reception. So that's listening and reading. When we think about language learning, unfortunately, we almost always focus on speaking as if the only reason we're there is to talk to people. And so like, hey, my job is to tell you something. You just sit there and listen, and I'm going to dump on you. But in reality, I think one of the key things we have to learn how to do is we have to learn how to listen. And I would say listening and then speaking, then reading and then writing. Quite frankly, most people don't end up with a huge need to be able to write at a deep level. There are exceptions to that, and there's ways to develop that. But when I think about strategies, one key point, Paul, is we there is no silver bullet. There is no one thing that if you adopt this method, you are going to get there and you're going to get there fast. It takes a variety of things. And I actually feel like when you are willing to try different things, then, then you're going to be more successful. Another thing that I think is really important for people to understand is I've had people come out and tell me... and. So I have a background in education. I have a bilingual uh, language and acquisition and development certificate from the state of California. I've been trained in ACTFELD. I've had multiple training. And so I actually, I mean, this is a passion and something I do, but I have people come out and tell me, oh, well, this is like, this is how I learn language. And I'm like, and I, and I ask people, I'm like, well, great. Tell me about the last time you learned a Semitic language in context. I'd love to hear what your, what your strategies are. And they're like, well, and like, they don't really know. So one thing that I would say is be open to other people guiding you, be open to doing things that you may not be comfortable with initially, because oftentimes those things will really help you. I think, you know, some of the things that you can do, we talk a lot about every, when you learn kind of a basic framework is glue. You want things to stick. So when you think about this, so the G, you want to get whatever new content, you want to learn that content. So you want to get to where you own it. Then you want to use that content. And finally, you want to evaluate what you've done. Now, I would say the vast majority of that needs to be in the use. Like you need to spend more time in the use portion than in the get. And oftentimes we focus on the get. So we're like spending four hours getting new material. And there is absolutely no way to incorporate four hours of new material if you're not practicing in class as well into your daily life. It's just like, well, if I don't sleep, okay, I can do that. 
And the other thing that people tend to forget is they don't evaluate. Is this actually helping me to move forward? Am I getting what I need? Did I really understand that? So at least on a weekly basis, just kind of evaluating, how did this week go? What did I learn? What I need to review more? What isn't making sense? And how do I go back and do that? And so, you know, I think classroom provides good structure. You have people who've thought through things. I think it can be really helpful. They give you an overview. Tutors, particularly at an advanced level, I think are really helpful because they can focus on specific things that you need help with or an area that you want to grow in. And then the street, that's where you're going to learn things you wouldn't ever learn otherwise. You know, they're just things that you're going to pick up. And particularly when you can be around a group of native speakers talking to each other, if you, if your listeners in America will take the time to, to just observe this, every time that they come in contact with somebody who's not a native English speaker, listen to how people around change their language. You make it slightly more simple. You speak more slowly. You enunciate more clearly. People do it worldwide. And so you will get to a point you feel like, oh, I'm doing great. Like I can understand totally. And then all of a sudden you plop yourself down and there's five guys around you and you're talking to, and you're like, oh my gosh, I didn't understand a single thing they said to each other. But the only way to get to where you can is to spend that time with them. So being out in community is key. And that broadens your relationship circle. It allows God to bring the people that he's already working in their lives into your life so that you have an opportunity to share with them. Yeah, I think that's really that's really good. You know, I, uh, I, I hope my students don't hear this, but I was never a great in the classroom student. But one of the things that I would do in my neighborhood when we lived in the Middle East is there was a bunch of guys who hung out at this barber shop young guys that were close to my age. And I would just go sit in the barbershop and I'd get a haircut like every week and hang out and chat with them. And it was that exact same thing where, man, they're talking and I'm just kind of looking around and listening, but you know, little, little by little, you kind of pick up a thing here or there. So that's a really helpful concept. I want to shift to kind of some lightning round, some kind of quicker thoughts, quicker answers. The first one is kind of a fill in the blank kind of question. So according to you, the best tool for language learning is blank. Okay. Best tool for language learning is relationships. And I say that because relationships allow you to develop it. Now, I would also say there are two character qualities that are essential that you could think of as a tool. And those are perseverance and humility being willing to humble yourself and just admit what you don't know. And when you don't understand, ask for clarification. And in terms of a resource, there is a book called a hundred cups of tea by Preston Fiddler, amazing book, amazing insights. The guy that, that, that wrote it is the real deal. Uh, he's one of my closest friends, one of my two best friends in the world. And he speaks language. I mean, he, he speaks more languages than I do, and but he is in people's lives all the time. And that book, read it before you go, read it after you get there, let it help you recalibrate regularly your motivation. Mm. Another fill in the blank question. The hardest part of learning a new language is blank. Feeling like a fool, being a two-year-old again, where you can't say anything. Yeah. Yeah. There's definitely a, 
a humiliation component to that, but, but everybody kind of faces it. Everybody deals with it. So you just embrace it and move forward. If somebody said, all right, Matt, you know, a lot about languages. What are the three most difficult languages to learn in the world? What, what would come to your mind? So they differ for depending on what your native language is, but if you're a native English speaker, if you're talking major world languages, Arabic, Mandarin Chinese, or Cantonese is even harder than Mandarin, and probably Japanese. If you're talking minority languages, there's a language in the North Caucasus called Lesgi that has like these sounds that are like, you know, it's like somebody punching you in the stomach and you have to make that. There are languages in Southern Mexico that are like, so over the top difficult in terms of the grammar. And as they kind of coalesce, there's there's like these tiny minute changes that most of the time non-native speakers can't even hear that make incredible difference in the world. So there are a lot of very, very, very difficult minority languages, but most people are not going to encounter those. Okay. You have talked about the, the challenges of being a two-year-old and learning language. Can you give us a story, just maybe one, of a funny blunder, an embarrassing moment that you had with learning a new language. Yeah. So when we when we moved to the Middle East, I had a friend that became a believer, would come to our house a lot. And every time he would come, like one of the things you do in Arab society, you always have to offer to people. And I learned fairly quickly, you offer three times, you know, so that people accept it because otherwise People will say no the first time. And if you take that, then as the answer, don't offer them any more, then you're really rude. But one of the things that I did was I would always say, we have water, we have tea, we have coffee, we have Cokes. And he finally, after about three or four months, you know, our relationship was really solid. He said, Matt, he said, you need to quit offering people water. I'm like, why? And he's like, because everyone knows you have water. Everyone has water. But when you offer water, you're basically telling people, I don't want you to drink my other stuff that costs something. Please drink the water. And I've been doing that with everyone that came to our house, you know? And so you're feeling like, oh my gosh, like how many people did I offend thinking that I was like being a good host by giving lots of options? It's like, okay, water is a free option. Don't offer it, you know? (laughs) Wow. That's a good, that's a, that's a good example even of language and how that ties into culture. And, yep. and so, yeah, there's just some, some connections there that we often can't see, or we don't, we don't think about until they're very clear to us. So that's good. All right. Last question. And thank you so much for your, for your time. What is one piece of advice that you would give to somebody who's preparing to learn a new language? Maybe somebody who's getting ready to go overseas or something along those lines, one piece of advice that you would give them before they go and learn. I would say be committed for the long haul. We want to be constantly learning and growing. And you don't ever stop. I mean, I'm still learning new things about English. I'm learning new words all the time in English. So of course, I'm going to be doing that in another language. And so I think if you're committed to that, if you trust that when God called you to go, he is preparing people that need the gospel. And if you faithfully persevere, he's going to bring those people into your life and you're going to have the joy of seeing people come to faith, of discipling people, 
of training leaders and watching them multiply themselves and other people. But you've got to be committed over the long haul. Matt, thank you so much for your time and for the conversation today. To hear more conversations like this, please subscribe to this podcast. Be sure to follow us on social media. Thanks again for listening to this episode. Thank you for joining us on Amazon to the Himalayas. This podcast is brought to you by the Billy Graham School at Southern Seminary. Please visit our website, www.sbts.edu bgs, where you can subscribe to the show and learn more. Also, if you have found these conversations helpful, please leave us a comment or a review and encourage your friends to subscribe to the podcast. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for more. This is Amazon to the Himalayas podcast.